Hello, my name is Ruth Pike and I will be your host for today. So welcome to the fifth installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by a great panel to discuss creating high performance teams. It's been a pleasure um, to speak to such an extraordinary panel and I'm sure this will certainly be an interesting podcast having spoken to you all over the last week, couple of weeks. So before we delve deeper into the topic, I'm going to work around the room with some introductions. So what I'd like to know is who you are, what you do, and also what are you passionate about? So Eric, please go for it. Hi, hi everybody, Eric Madison. Uh, I am the Vice President of Global Engineering for a vast security software company. Um, What am I passionate about? Honestly, uh, kind of the tail end of my career, my passion has been trying to build the software engineering teams that I always wished I was a software engineer. Love that. Brilliant. Thank you. Paul, you go next, please. Great. Uh, yeah, I'm Paul Whiteside. Um, I'm a CTO. Um, I'm a technology guy through and through. I love product. I love technology. I love building things. Uh, more than anything, I like building teams that build things. And uh, <laughs> just like Eric, I love to see people succeed and build those great teams and, and see people having fun doing what they do best. So. Brilliant, thank you. And safe, last but not least. Uh, my name is Saif Mohammed. Um, I am working as an IT director for Diligence Group uh, right now. I have had uh, 20 years of experience in IT, uh, similar to Eric and Paul. Always uh, been uh, the technologist. Uh, uh, I've come from a hands-on coding background, now moved into a more senior role. And what I'm passionate about is uh, one part of uh, uh, my passion from since I should say 10 years ago, where, uh, for example, the management generally doesn't uh, worry too much about the employees. So it's not, you, you don't get the empathy from the management, uh, irrespective of all the amount of work you do. So that's that's when I've changed myself saying that's not what I should be doing. So picking up the senior roles, I made sure I was keep the, my team engaged. And the second passion I have is about transformation. So that is something I've been doing since last five years. And I love how, uh, again, especially about digital transformation. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So now that we've established a context to each of you, let's move on to the topic and focus. So we're all here because we've got an interest in the topic of creating high performance teams. Now, you've all gave me a question that you'd like to cover. So what we're going to do is work around the room. Everyone will pose their question. We'll go into the answers. um, And yeah, let's go right into your experiences so we can get the best and, and share, as much, share as many tips and tricks that we possibly can. Um, so the first person I'm going to start with in terms of your question is Eric. So yeah, Eric, please pose your question and um, give your views and then we'll work our way around the room. Sure. So, so question is something I ponder a lot about is, you know, we say the term high performance team, what do we really mean? And, it, and, and if, we, if we're trying to define something, by definition, we have to measure it. So, so when you say that definition of high-performance team, how do you measure a high-performance team, and what what do you measure about that team? And then, and and candidly, as you do that, how do you report on it, and who do you report it to? Uh, I, I'll say this is something that that we balance a lot of uh, in my current role. You know, it's a very kind of metrics and measurement-driven organization. Is kind of a, I like my little pithy sayings, uh, which is measure what matters, and if you don't measure it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but, but you also have to be super careful when, when you're measuring a team because, you know, the kind of the quantum computing thing, which is, which is measurement in itself creates change. And as soon as you create a measurement, you, you create a team that kind of naturally tries to optimize for the thing that you're measuring. And sometimes when those measurements manifest farther up the chain of command, uh, they, can be, they can be misinterpreted. 
right? You know, one of the most common ones is, you know, if you're running a traditional scrum process and you measure velocity, well, it, it, is velocity a numeric measure of the quality of your team? No, but boy, it looks like one, <laughs> right? The, yeah. And so, you know, I talk a little bit, some of the things that, that, that I try and do is, is I, I try and kind of create measures that analyze three constituent parts of what goes into an engineering team. So, so the cultural health of the team, right? Uh, it, we mentioned it earlier, like great teams have fun. They have purpose. They're on a mission. They're meaning. These aren't directly measurable, but you can measure kind of the cultural health of the team and some instrument tools that we, we use internally to track that. We have a report out on that. We kind of try and keep our, our engineers purposeful and engaged. We try and measure the health of our process tools and just not how good our engineers are doing, right? But how supported they are by the tools. So code cycle time. So for a given release, how old is the code that went out now? It's basically how long did that code sit before it went out to customer? Uh, you know, uh, defect escape rate. How many defects escape to management and for a given defect, how long does it take to take us to identify and resolve that? Uh, rather than measuring velocity, we measure um, committed to delivered ratio. So for a given engineering team of what you said you were going to do in a given iteration, what percentage of that did you do? Uh, and then the third one is is kind of a, a automated measures of code health, right? So looking at ways, you know, how's your code complexity doing? What's your cyclomatic complexity? What's, how deep is your dependency graph? Trying to, to create reasonably formal measures of, hey, here's how much technical that we've done, right? You'll, you know, every team kind of does this guys, you got to get this release out. Sales team comes in and says, got to get this feature out. It's going to make us 82 gajillion dollars. Uh, so we crunch to get it out. That comes at a cost, right? It comes at, a, at an emotional cost to the team. It comes at a, a, you incur technical debt, right? Technical debt isn't code you don't like. It has an impact, but it, it's the cost that you pay to full feature delivery in and deliver it to customers. And so, so that's kind of what we've structured as a way to kind of try to evaluate where we are kind of across all of the dimensions that go into to building and, and constructing super high performance teams. That's great. Thank you. So I'll move over to Paul. Um, can you give us your views on, on Eric's question? Yeah, great. And that was a, a great question. So, um, you know, how do you measure high performance and uh, what, what does that look like? So I'd say it depends which company you're in and what your objectives are. And I also believe in, in measuring things um, and I also believe in measuring what matters. And there's this period when a team gets started when they need to measure stuff, but nothing makes sense for a little while until they drive out, understand, you know, what are those measurements that, that do matter? And it's as much about, you know, how well the team is doing internally to how well it's reporting what they're doing and how well that's aligned to the business objectives. So, you know, you need to create OKRs that, that have both sides of the coin, if you like. Um, now that the stuff that's really important to engineers, and you mentioned a whole lot of them, which is great. And then the stuff that's really important to product guys and the stuff that's really important to sales guys, and they all have to kind of line up. And to me, that's always been the, uh, the idea behind um, OKRs. Uh, but but getting back to you know what what does a high performance team do you know yes it's totally about measuring code health producing high quality working at pace um, but delivering the the right things and ensuring that there's alignment and something else that I also like to measure is uh, is it, um, it are you plateauing on any measures and then dig a little bit deeper on that measure why is that do I have the enabling thing behind the scenes do I need to tweak my pipeline do I need better definition or ready that kind of thing to make sure that you can actually take some of those metrics make good decisions drive change from them 
Um, and also, I like to be able to say to a team, if, if I have an answer in my head about what I think uh, the performance problem is, I, sometimes I don't tell the team. Sometimes I just say, here's the number. What do you think? And then you get to sometimes a new OKR completely. That, that's a better one. So I um, totally agree with everything Eric said there. And um, But, you know, for, for me, in addition, the, the enablement bits are really important. So. Brilliant, thank you. And Saif, do you want to go next, please? Uh, this, uh, I think, uh, Eric, the question looks very simple, but it's really, really complicated. Because if you, especially when you're working in a scale-up companies, as I said in the beginning, like small teams, uh, again, you have a competing priorities, first, uh, first thing. The product owner wants to go somewhere. The sales team wants you to be somewhere else. Whereas the team comes and says that, oh, we have an underlying technical debt. So three different competing priorities. So again, how do you prioritize them? And now, or they led to, sometimes they're not even led to the OKR. That's the second challenge. <laughs> so you have to, you have to make sure, first of all, what are we delivering? It's, it's aligned to the OKRs. And then team understands what that what that means. So first of all, a corporate level, organizational level OKRs is not something which team understands. So they want to know what does that mean? What what's in it for me? What am I doing? So from again coming from the top to bottom, OKRs converting from a company corporate goals to again a department goals, and then to the goals to the teams, and then what what that actually mean to each individual person. So again, disseminating that information is is going to be a, a challenge. So again, I've slowly started. Uh, uh, it's almost coming to a year now. In the beginnings, it was very it was very crazy. So the team were uh, again they're not engaging. And some people, I mean, some of the team members want to leave the organization because they, they felt uh, they, what are they doing? They've been doing exactly the same thing since the last five years. I can't say that to the, the, uh, the management team. So they say, we're getting the salaries. What's the problem? <laughs> it's as simple as that. So I think, Eric, you mentioned that, okay, how do you show that? How do you show how the team is happy or not? It's not a smiley face. You can't have a smiley face every day, right? <laughs> it's not something what you can show to the uh, senior management. So that's, again, being that middleman, uh, I think it's, it's it's very important. I think Paul, you you mentioned your from your experience as well. Uh, I think this that that's the first thing which I have addressed, um, and I'm very happy to say I think it matches to what you both are saying. So I'm I'm not, I'm not the only one there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And would anyone like to add anything onto that that question about the um, measurements of or what is a high performance team before we move on to the next question? I just want to add just a, a comment and actually kind of a question to the group. Because yeah. I have a completely inconsistent experience with OKRs, right? The, yeah. the OKRs are either the best tool for organizational alignment or one of the most harmful instruments I've ever seen rolled out in the organization. The the how, like how do you guys drive to to the former rather than the latter? Because you both reference I, OKRs I, in your uh, thoughts. I, I I feel your pain. Um, <laughs> I think that the trouble comes when you get a sort of self-appointed OKR police and you turn your OKRs into some kind of PMO office for OKRs. That, that's pure <laughs> evil. Um, and the, the key uh, thing with OKRs is if they're not working out, they're meant to drive a discussion. If the discussion's not happening, you're not changing stuff, you don't have good OKRs, you know. So, um, you know, I, I've read the book several times, Measure What Matters. Each time I sort of get a new little epiphany from it. But it always requires me to go through some pain at work and then go back to the book, think, well, what's going wrong with this? So, uh, yeah, keep keep talking uh, is my advice. So I think uh, Eric, uh, I think Paul has, I think he, I think quite uh, quite rightly highlighted the fact that if you're coming from a PMO background, right? For example, you got a project management office and you got this. Uh, I mean, I I have worked as a digital transformation director where I used to have a portfolio with number of programs and projects and everything going on on one side. On the other side, there is a software development teams and the data and DI teams. They don't they don't want to work on projects. They want to work on agile methodologies. So 
again, we're trying to combine them together and then suddenly introduce OKR. I think the senior management team generally get confused. So first of all, I think uh, I would, I my personal preference will be for the entire senior management team to understand the concept of OKRs, to actually get trained in one of the frameworks. You know, with OKRs, you can have various frameworks, right? You can go for SAFE, you can go for uh, various other frameworks which are there. So the entire company, especially from the senior management team, the top management team, should agree on that's what we're going to follow as a framework. If they don't agree, I think, Eric, that is your second, that is the challenge where it comes in. <laughs> because Eric likes OKRs because I, I'm, I'm a, again, you're part of a, you're a VP of engineering, so you have multiple teams and you want OKRs are the best things because the team works perfectly in that one. And then when Paul said about PMO, I think that's it. If people are used to PMO projects, suddenly you're going in this direction of OKRs. It's, it, there are two different directions. So I think both of them should be aligning. I think the alignment is not there. I think you got the, you got the, yeah. <laughs> the <failure>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if we're, everyone is happy with what they want to say on that top, um, on that subtopic, we'll move over to Paul. So Paul, go for it, pose your question. Um, give us a little bit of context and then we'll work our way, our way around the room. Okay. Um, my, my question is really simply in that, um, what do you do when you're put in charge of a team that's just not motivated? Uh, it's, it's a death march. People are cranking the handle, stuff's coming out, you're not sure what it is and nobody's interested. What's the, uh, what, what are our options? You know, I'm, uh, it, I, I can think of a few. Um, but it's really important to me that people are intrinsically motivated um, and it's great to hit numbers um, because people love hitting numbers, you know, it does motivate people. But, um, you know, what, what ways and techniques have you found to, um, to just get that spring in people's steps when you encounter a team like this? Okay. Well, do you want to go first in this question, um, Paul, or do you want to go to the group first and then go from there? Uh, yeah, well, I'll go first, you know, so okay. um, some <laughs> things I've done in the past is you got to understand whether, you know, people believe in the thing that they're building. Now, for, for me, uh, universally, I've never met an engineer that didn't want to be an engineer. You know, people, people don't come into this and learn how to code without a good reason, because it's quite a journey. Um, now, you, you end up doing a little bit of archaeology, I think, with such a team. You need to find out what, what exactly happened and, and when. Uh, and you can find out things like um, that the team has got competing priorities or the team is, you know, maybe forced to deliver even when they know the quality's off and, and they, they, they stop caring. Uh, and by five o'clock, everyone is out of there. And um, to, to address it, you know, what I like to do is really just go through those backlogs and, and pick out things and start talking about them. Uh, in the early days, um, e even if we're not doing agile, I, I maybe just have a big town hall session with the team just to drive out, you know, what exactly is it and uh, where is the blocker here? Um, and uh, what's in the way of, of making these deliverables? Once you find those things, you know, it can be, maybe it can be that the processes are too heavy weight. It, it could be that it's very vague what we're building, but you're expected to deliver anyway. Or it's that everything we deliver is, is bad quality and 50% of what we do is bugs and we're all fed up with it. So to me, it's always about, you know, looking at the work and refining the work 
and uh, getting the team to a place where that that big bucket of, of work and you know like who likes doing work for nothing right but <laughs> that that big bucket of work is turned into a challenging goal that the team feel that they can make mm-hmm. and uh, and then you you encourage them to to start making it and the first few sprints you know things can be a bit hit and miss with sprint goals but eventually you start to see maybe a smile on people's faces you might get to see some some bugs coming down you might get to a place where that release was better um retrospectives stop becoming uh, uh, you know an awful thing where people are half in tears and people are actually beginning to contribute effectively so um to me it it all begins with you know addressing the 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 work uh making sure that it amounts to something that the teams believe in and and getting them engaged and behind delivering that so uh, that's that's my take, uh, but it'd be very interested to hear what everyone else has, uh, has seen and experienced. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Safe, do you want to go next? It's very interesting. I think the uh, question was very small. It's, it's four, four words and five words, and it's very, it's, I think it, it actually did, it actually breaks the, uh, uh, makes the company. So if, especially if you're working in a scale up and if you're working on a SaaS product, I think if the team doesn't, um, it's not motivated, it, it's going to break the whole thing. And I think the team, <laughs> It impacts the company as uh, overall. So what I tend to do is, I think, support motivation. One 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 aspect of uh, what I uh, am very passionate about, uh, especially for my team, are looking into what their interests are. So I've, I've looked. Uh, I've actually I have found some shocking information when you take them have that informal discussion or informal chat. If you discuss in in front of the whole team, you don't get what exactly the what the the, the background uh, noise is, what they have in their minds. Sometimes. The same person doing the same mistake again and again. So it's not he didn't want to do it and he didn't want to be told off and he know he's doing a mistake. It's just like, okay, taking him outside and just taking him for a coffee and trying to understand what that is. So having an informal chart sometimes, uh, it gives uh, a lot of, uh, I think, information about why they're doing those mistakes. And once you explain to them, so see, this is what what you're doing and this is impacting your whole team, suddenly it changes. And number two, I've actually found out was uh, sometimes, you know, giving more responsibility. I know it looks very scary, uh, especially... Again, if you're if you if you know you there is a senior developer and you suddenly want them to become a team lead or uh, want to become a adult manager or a senior adult manager and vice versa or a head of development that sort of thing. Sometimes the person who's actually taking is a is, for him or her it is daunting as well as the person who's giving. So for us, for example, we have to be uh, we have to have the assurance that he can do it. He has never done it before, but then we have to be able to give that chance to them. So again, they, they will they will blow us away. So that is something which I have personally experienced. So the person who was a serial developer, and I asked him, can you become a development manager? Because I don't have a uh, anyone. I don't want to hire someone. You are with the company for so long. And he was he was okay to take that one. But after three weeks, and then he was running the stand-ups and everything. So that's that's the second thing which I have really uh, liked about. So again, sometimes you give, you give that extra challenge. And uh, Third one is uh, this challenge is on a personal basis. Sometimes what I tend to do is within the team, I identify a champion. So uh, I think Paul, you mentioned about uh, some of the some of the issues which you have, uh, like a number of bugs and that sort of thing. So what um, the problem always will be if everything is given to the scrum master or everything is given to the development manager or the product owner. Sometimes it's because it's like a, a manager trying to trying to tell the person off. Instead, a story can have a champion, and it can be a person, a developer. So the developer champion champions it. He's the champion of the story. If anyone have any issues, he go to that person. That person's job is to then go and discuss with the product owner, which means we have a champion across the team. Again, what we're trying to uh, implement is accountability. So the team generally suddenly becomes, oh, this is my story. I'm accountable. I'm I'm not writing the whole code. That's that's <laughs> important. You should not feel that, again, it, it can go in opposite direction. Again, uh, 
it has to go in the positive way in the sense of, okay, this is not an OKR for me. It is just that I'm I'm trying to have that information. That sense of accountability is the third thing. And finally, one of the most important things is which, which I try to do is, uh, for example, uh, I tend to have an R&D project. So I have root, uh, I've looked into Google, how Google works, and Google generally allows the development teams to actually have R&D days. I have failed so far three times to three different companies where I was not able to give them dedicated time for R&D. It is, it is not actually, it's not that easy. Now, since I'm in, the, in in this company, because it's a product oriented and we are developing products, one of the things which I have tried to implement was every two weeks, once every two weeks, the developers will have one day purely for R&D. So they can try out new things and come with, because it's if you're coming to office 95 every day, you're not learning anything, you become stale and you, you get disappointed about yourself and you think that company is not giving valuing enough. So that's something. So there are four different types of things which I've done. So. That's great. Thank you very much for sharing your own personal experience as well, Paul and Safe. So Eric, go for it. What do you think? Sure. I was just going to comment. I want to say things Safe said first, which is I've similarly failed to get dedicated R&D time carved out. What we what we did at Blizzard that worked super, super well was at quarterly planning boundaries, we would do a one week hackathon that would, revo- that would involve all of the non-critical path planning personnel. And so you, you bundle it all together and it's a directed hackathon. Generally what happens is going into the hackathon, leadership will go, here's a pro- here's kind of a broad question that we wanna ask the organization, but undirected. Uh, and that was actually super, super successful. There's a number of features that popped up in Battle.net that were a direct result of, of yeah, teams kind of self-forming and going off and doing a few day hackathon and, and implementing some features. So, so in terms of suggestion, that was super, super powerful. <clears throat> I, I think, I mean, I kind of agree with what everyone else said towards the original question, which is, which is the, the first thing starts with the question of why, what's going on, right? You have a team that's fallen off or isn't working. You better understand, right? You, you know, the naive solution, well, I'm just going to go beat them until they perform better. <laughs> no, obviously not, right? <laughs> but so, you know, you got to look at the team, you got to understand, you, you have to go, Right, it's psychological theory of motivation. People are there's three primary vectors of motivation, and, and you know, as Paul touched on, people are internally or externally motivated, right? And so, very often, what you get with a team that's fallen off is you got a team that's fallen into external motivation, right? So they're motivated for reward, re, either for positive reward or avoidance of punishment. I want to do just enough so I don't get yelled at my by, by my boss, or I want to do just enough so that I unlock my next tier of bonus, right? Or I get that promotion. But the problem with with extrinsic motivation is people are only motivated to do the least to receive the most, right? And that's one of the first things that happen. And then the components that go into that, right? It's it's autonomy. Does the person feel like they have ownership and agency in their daily work? It, and that's not true freedom, right? That's that is constraint that allows some personal decision making, some agency in how you decide. Mastery: Are my skills growing, or am I re-implementing the same system for the 748th time, where I can basically <laughs> copy paste submit, copy paste submit? Right. And then the third one, which which actually, in my experience, is the most important one, though it's the hardest one to get right, which is a sense of belonging. Right. And belonging can come from relationship. Right. You've got a team that is very tightly knit. It can come from a sense of shared purpose. Right. Where we're on a mission to change the world. Uh, the. There's, there's a third dimension that just slipped my mind, doesn't matter, right? But that, that sense of belonging is super critical, right? Because when you when you belong or you're on a mission or you feel really related to somebody, oh, I remember the other one. And there's an interesting one that I just read an article about not that long ago, which is even better than, than uh, purpose and relationship. 
if there's a, a genuine sense of joy and fun in your daily work, you will get the most internally motivated people that will, and when you're internally motivated versus externally motivated, you don't do the least to achieve the most. You do the most you possibly can to deliver the result because the result itself is what you're driving for, right? And so when you look at all of those components, you go in and understand what's going on in the team. You know, Steve correctly mentions, like you have to do, you have to go do individual relationships and build that sense of psychological safety in the organization. You have to make sure, and quite candidly, you have to have done this a long time before the problem happened, right? Yeah. If the problem happens and I go in and build a relationship, no one trusts, right? 100%. So like, who's this Who's this knuckleheaded VP who just showed up and started out? He's asking, he asked me out for coffee. He said, if I'm meeting with me, oh God, I'm gonna get fired, right? <laughs> you have to have built this sense of safety and trust long before the problem itself occurs. And then you can go in and have a dialogue and understand, you know, what happened. Are, are people just bored with their work? Ha, have they lost that you, you fall into, you know, treating your engineers as task machines rather than giving them problems and interesting things to work on? Yeah. Ha, has the relationship broken down or this sense of purpose and mission broken down because you're under such delivery pressure that you don't feel like you can do a good job? Every one of those has a different answer to how you fix it and how you do it. And they all have kind of different tools. So, so anyways, I ramble a lot, but, but that's... <laughs> That's really the thing is, is, is a depth of understanding of building up a relationship, creation of that psychological safety, and then, and then going in and addressing the core issues that are, that are impeding their ability to do great work. That's great. Thank you very yeah. much. All really, really insightful and, and very much what you've actually been doing yourself. So I really appreciate that. Um, has anyone got, does anyone want to add anything more into, into that question? Yeah, just, just, uh, just to echo back that, uh engineers love to have fun doing engineering and i love the word not a task machine because when you turn an engineer into a task machine they respond very badly uh, they actually get <laughs> ill um, this is what burnout is and uh, you don't get good engineering work you don't get elegant solutions um and it might look like things are going slowly because everything isn't frenetic but the quality is good the enablement's there the foundations are in that's what you're building for. So. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, and Safe, do you want to go on to your question, please? And put a bit of context into I it think, as well. Yeah, so this, this is, a, I mean, this is it, it's my, current, uh, my current role, which is what I'm hiring mm -hmm. right now. So like, the question is, how do you build and promote a high performance culture within the team? So generally, that's, that is okay if you, the team is in one country. Now I'm talking about having uh, the teams in, across multiple countries. So again, I want to understand uh, your experiences, Paul and Eric. The second part of the question is to, again, how will the team know what are their contribution towards the organizational chaos? <laughs> so I think two two different aspects. So from the first one, uh, I mean, I just want to give my view. <laughs> then yeah, go for it, gather, yeah. I want to gather, th gather your thoughts as well. Uh, so I mean, building a high-performance team, first of all, uh, when I've joined, I mean, every organization is different and every team is different, every person is different. So one of the most important things is, is to understand the skill level. So what I've done is I've done uh, implementing a skills matrix. So skills matrix is explaining, for example, first of all, assigning a role, each role, what are the skills, and associating or assigning a person to that to that skills matrix, then you know uh, at, a, at any one point in time what are their ups and downs. So where 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 they have uh, high points and what are the weak points. So that's the first thing which which I have done. And when you do the same thing across a different country, it's a different challenge <laughs> because skills matrix is something. As I, I'm, I'm a, I think in in UK it's being used a lot and it is uh, I think it's well uh, used by the organizations and it comes from the HR and they actually 
promote this uh, skills metrics and doing this PDPs and person development and that sort of thing. So some some organizations they don't even have PDPs, but again that is that's a different challenge. Then again that also will will be a bigger cause for not having the motivation because if you don't have the PDPs, you don't know what you're aiming for. The so PDPs are more more personal. So again. What's in it for me is always uh, any any engineer or developer will generally think. But again, we always say no, no, no. We this is our company's goal, so let's let's deliver this feature. This is a sales team waiting for there. We always do that one. Now coming to multiple countries, the second challenge is the language, <laughs> the language barrier <laughs> where it comes in. And then when you talk about PDPs, the first question is what is a PDP? Why do you want to have a PDP? Again, I'm talking about the teams I have got is uh, in uh, Morocco, Tangier, and then we got in Dubai. So. <laughs> they have a different view viewpoints on uh, what what uh, uh, again what high performance or what the culture is. Uh, the cultures are completely different. Again, implementing the PDPs and making sure they have they're high performing is 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 going to be a major challenge. And the final one is uh, again talking about uh, how does the team understand? How does each team understand? What are their contributions? I think this is the first thing you mentioned. I think uh, uh, Eric, you mentioned in the beginning. So we have these OKRs. And we define the OKRs. What, what again? What is their OKR? A team has got a, their own OKRs and a department as well. And then Paul, uh, I think we discussed in the beginning about uh, PMOs related OKRs. Now this one, when you have an OKR, I know what my OKR is. How I disseminate that to my uh, again to each team and vice versa to each person is is a bigger challenge. So always, it's very important that we show what they're. Uh, I mean, what are they uh, doing on an overall basis? So what I've done is from the overall company standpoint, I have got a product roadmap, not a technology roadmap, product roadmap looks a little different. <laughs> so the product roadmap is I have actually the senior management team. They, we all discuss a lot of things, what, what's happening and we have OKRs across across board, but we don't show this information to the rest of the organization. So that is the first thing which I have done in the beginning of this year to implement a product roadmap where all the senior leadership team, they actually provide their input into that product roadmap and we actually then show it to the rest of the organization. So these are a couple of things which I've done. Again, I'd love to hear more ideas from uh, or, uh, how we can improve as well. Yeah, great. Thank you. Eric, do you want to uh, follow on from that, please? Absolutely. Happy to. Uh, Thank so you. The, one of the one of the ones that's super interesting in the conversation you just raised, right, is, is driving high performance cultures or high performance teams across multiple locations, right? You know, uh, my current role this is the this is the most I've ever dealt with, which is I think I have uh, teams in twelve different countries. The and so and it's super interesting, right? Because it goes back to the kind of the previous conversation, which is understanding how people are motivated, how teams are motivated, right? And what outcomes they're trying to drive for, because you have very, very different cultures that you need to understand in driving it, right? If, and this is going to be very generic and, and somewhat stereotypical. And so apologies for that, because not everyone fits in this category. But but just as a general theme, right? If you're, if you're working with, uh, you know, an American development team, they're most likely probably pretty driven. They're often very financially motivated, right? How do I achieve that next thing? driving European dev teams, those teams have a, have a tendency to be much more motivated around how do I do great work, but make sure that I have enough time away from work as well, right? And then, and then you go drive a team in the East and they're much more status motivated, right? You know, do you, you know, and, and the structures you put in place and the way that you drive the teams are fundamentally different, right? If you go in and try and create an open, honest, transparent culture where you have a, a a you know old Amazon uh, terminology, which is have backbone, disagree, and commit. Like I expect someone if if they disagree with something to boldly state that they disagree with it, right? If I try and execute that in in China, it won't work. No one will ever disagree with me. They'll all just go, yes, Eric, it's awesome. And then maybe maybe if you're lucky and you've built a relationship, 
after the meeting, one of the people that the most senior person in the room will come aside and pull you aside and very gently go, are we really sure that's the right thing to do, right? They want to make sure that, that your face is preserved because you're their leader and they would never challenge you directly in the, meet, in the yeah. meeting, right? And so, so how you organize and drive those teams has to be respectful of the culture that they reside in <laughs> and has to be, be indicative. There, and there's no, there's no like rule set, right? It's not like American dev teams are better than Chinese dev teams. Chinese dev teams, which are better than Romanian dev teams. Now, they're just different, right? Strengths, weaknesses, and you have to be respectful of it and manage the team. Some of the things that I do in this context is I generally try and build my teams so that the teams themselves are regionally co-located with a, with a regional leader who's respectful and understanding of them. And where I need to build structures across multiple localities, I do that the next tier up. So I will build teams of teams where you have multiple localities, you can get the value of follow the sun, but you have to have that depth of understanding of what's going on and, the, and be respectful of the culture to be able to be able to build that. The, you know, talking about OKRs, the, one one of the things that we've recently started doing, so, so one, uh, the teams have to feel agency and ownership of the OKR and feel like they've been able to con contribute into it. We've started leveraging uh, another Google framework, which is Gold Signals Metrics. And so that what we do in building out the KRs for our individual dev teams is we start from the organizational OKR. And we describe a lot of the key results that they're looking at as the signal that the organization is trying to achieve. But the actual constituent parts of that, the measurements and the metrics that feed into that is team derived. We go to the team and we go, here's your goal. This is an organizational goal. You own, a, you own this part of it. Here's the signals by which we're going to measure our success against that goal. What are the metrics that you're going to use to drive into it? So far, now, mind you, we're about, I don't know, a month and a half into this particular iteration uh, of the evolution of OKRs for us. But so far, there's a much there's a much greater ownership on the part of the teams and part of the OKRs. Whereas in previous iterations, the teams just kind of looked at them and said, "That's just management trying to force us to do something." Um, and and the teams kind of, they had tissue rejection on the part of the teams. Now at least they feel like they have ownership and agency. And quite candidly, they're setting their own measure, right? But it's a, it's a measurement that's informed by what the goal is and what the signal that it, that you're trying to derive it. That's great. Thank you very much. And Paul, do you uh, do you want to um, take give yeah. us your outlook on that question? Yeah, yeah, totally. So uh, you know, a culture is, is really important uh, in in teams, and there's been a lot of things mentioned here about where the team are from, what what facets of that culture matter. How to create safety in the team you know that's a, a kind of universal one for me i like to always try and create a bit of internal competition um, and, and tap into the fact that all engineers are real show-offs really and uh, that they, they love to be able to get status you know in terms of their skills and recognition and uh, you know the, the different ways to do that of course you know hackathons were mentioned that's a good way um, but also um, when it comes to people and culture that that can be instilled in the structures as well so you know you can use um, organizational patterns like guilds to to drive high performing cultures where there's a this backdrop of excellence um, but you also need this backdrop of um, of support as well, because what where I've seen gills go wrong is that they, they set the bar too high and people get demotivated trying to reach it, and they forget that you know it's all about the journey of A to B as opposed to uh, what the latest trend is. You know, actually getting the team to that point it can take year or more um so uh, and, and the team has to do it you know themselves you you can't do it for the team so uh having a culture where 
that they're not looking up for their leader to solve everything, um, but that, uh, that they're able, that they feel competitive with each other, they feel ready to go and grasp an early problem and feel secure that they'll get support in, uh, in solving it. Uh, and also a sort of healthy respect that um, uh, nothing's black and white in tech, so there's going to be failures. You know, I've, I've never met a team who switched on a continuous pipeline and just started running it. Right, That's a hit and miss process that takes weeks and weeks at first to try and get it right and, and configurations. So, you know, getting the team comfortable with failing and, and getting up and doing it a different way and discussing what went wrong is, is really important as well. So it's, uh, I guess, you know, I could summarize that as, as, as basically, you know, understanding what good looks like, sharing, giving support, helping people along and tapping into the engineer's competitiveness is uh, something that I do a lot to create the culture. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, does anyone want to add on to, and add on to that point and to that question? Okay. Yeah, so just I think well, one thing which uh, I think it's very important, uh, to, uh, which you highlighted, Paul, internal competition. So. I mean, having that open open platform for anyone to be able to say sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. <laughs> because uh, I mean, I have I have had, uh, for example, two excellent excellent uh, team leads who has completely different idea, who's expert in uh, in their own areas. But again, it's sometimes it's going to be <laughs> a healthy competition is always a good thing. So again, so, sometimes at some point, the healthy competition suddenly becomes into more of. A <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to use any bad words, but <laughs> so I think that I, again, yeah, course, yeah. I want to understand your views as well, uh, Eric. So Paul, you mentioned about internal competition, how you uh, how you pose that in front of the engineers and try to make that work. And again, from Eric, because you have multiple locations, that's my, that's the, again, I'm coming back to the different countries. <laughs> well, so I tend to shy away from 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 internal competition, the to be totally honest, right? Because because it becomes a uh, a measurement problem. Like, how do you measure the impact of an organization? How do you measure the impact of the team? You've got very diverse teams in diverse locales. Like, I, I try and drive them as opposed to creating the, the sense of competition. Really, mission and purpose, right? Like, continue driving those teams back to that kind of that shared sense of we're all in this together. Where we are, you know, we are a team of very diverse individuals. You know, that sense of belonging and mission that that really ends up kind of being, you know, as opposed to kind of fostering that sense of competition. It's more I want to create a, an environment and a culture where you just can't even think of letting down your coworkers. Yeah. Right. Where where it's it, it, it's just it ends up and and quite candidly, you have to be a little bit careful with this one too, um, because and this happens a ton in games industry, which is you can over identify with the product that you work on and the code that you write, and you can tie up too much of your identity in it. And that sense of, I couldn't dare to let let down my thing can can cause engineers to be, uh, to, to actually do way more work, to, to damage their own personal relationships and personal life, because they're so committed to the cause that they go like, and so, so like anything else, there's always a dark side to it. Um, but as opposed to driving the competition aspect of it, I try and drive the belonging and, and collectivist aspect of it. That's great. Brilliant. Um, so, I mean, we've lost Paul for a second, but um, <laughs> that's what happens. But um, I mean, it's, you've all come up with some amazing points and I, I really do appreciate every single one of you going into so much depth and, ex and into your own, into own experience instead of giving us an overall answer to the question. So that's been really good and really, really insightful. So I do think that 
whoever listens to this is going to get a lot of tips and tricks um, and also a lot of knowledge from what you have all shared. Um, obviously, before we end it, would anybody like to add anything in terms of any views or any other questions or subtopics um, that you would like to cover before we we make this a wrap? Uh, personally, I can I can just give my my input was I think I've learned I've understood a lot of things from both Paul and Eric. I think I've got uh, some new ideas. I think uh, uh, one thing which uh, Eric you mentioned about the Google Signal Framework that I have not come across before, so I, I'm going to try that one. <laughs> so <laughs> I started good. working with the, with teams having that okay. Uh, team the okay, getting teams involved so that is yeah. something uh, which i'm planning already but again but uh, google signal framework is something i'm going to try yeah it's going to be goals <laughs> it's gsm goals signals metrics gsm okay yep that's great well, oh, sorry, that's yeah, all yeah. All I can ask for is people already taking stuff from this. Um, Paul, I was going to wrap it up, um, but before I do, I don't know if you wanted to add anything on to what we've covered. Um, and I was just uh, just thanking you all for, for going in so personal and to what experiences that you've had. I, not only that, it was uh, really great to share, um, get other viewpoints, uh, a few great tips and, um, you know, some takeaways from me. I'll, I'll be going trying to implement a few things differently now so yeah brilliant well that's exactly why we've got these podcasts so that's uh, music to my ears <laughs> um brilliant so we'll wrap it up here then um so for everybody listening this has been the evolution exchange podcast and i just want to take this opportunity to thank you all so much for coming on and taking part in this um taking part in speaking about your own experiences and knowledge it's been really insightful and i'm pretty sure um, that a lot of people who are going to listen to this will take a lot from this discussion um, so yeah thank you again for um, sharing all your insights um, and thank you all for listening <laughs>